God bless you. Thank you. John chapter 19. Well, the last couple of Sundays I've been in a series of messages. This morning's the last part of that three-part series entitled, I Will Put My Name There. Most of you have been here for the last couple of Sundays. I know we have a few guests, a few first-time visitors and folks that might have missed a Sunday in there. And so I'll do a little catch-up with you. And so those of you that have never heard any of this, I'm going to do a quick review of the last two messages. For those of you who have heard the last two messages, I promise I will not re-preach all the details because that wouldn't be fair to you. But it will serve as a little reminder and kind of pull it all together. Now, the premise where I have come from is this. In various places in the Scripture, the Old Testament especially, there are phrases where God speaks to His people, to King David, to King Solomon, and to His people Israel and to others, where he speaks about a specific place on the face of the earth where he will take his people, where there his glory will come forth, where there his people will become great uh, uh, in the land that God had promised Abraham. Now we know that area as the area in the city of Jerusalem. And so God says things in the scriptures like, I will take you to a place where I will put my name, or I will take you to a place where I have put my name, or I will, or here in this place is my name, or my name is glorified in this place. There's this emphasis on the name of God in and around Jerusalem. Now, for those of you who have seen my picture of the, um, of the satellite photo of the globe in space, the earth in space, you, you know that when you spin that earth around, spin that globe around and go to the area of the Middle East and Africa and that area, when you spin it around, if you draw a red X right in the middle of it, Israel is almost dead center of the, of the globe, on that side of the globe. And then right almost in the dead center of Israel is Jerusalem. And right in the dead center of Jerusalem are some amazing things that I've been sharing with you. So it is really the center of God's focus and eye on this little teeny, teeny piece of land. What is the center of the news today? Israel. What has been the center of the news at least weekly, if not daily, since the 1940s? In 1948, actually, May 16, 1948, Israel. When Israel came back as a nation, God said, I will use this place, I will use this place as my witness. But way back, thousands of years before that, God told His people, I'm going to take you to a place where I have put my name. I'm going to take you to a place where I will put my name. In fact, here's one example in Ezra chapter 6, verse 12. For those of you in the back that can't see it, that's the scripture reference. You might want to write it down. Here's an example. Ezra chapter 6, verse 12. It says, may God who has caused His name to dwell there. May God who has caused His name to live there, to dwell there, May he overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. This is Ezra quoting King Darius of the Persian Empire when he was releasing some of the Jews to go back home and to, be, to rebuild the city walls and, the, and, and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the temple itself. Even King Darius knew something about the glory of God's name being in that place. He had heard others speak of it. Perhaps God had spoken it to his heart. But Ezra recites his words and even this king who was the conquering nation over the people of Israel at that time says, May God who has caused his name to dwell there all right, turn the page if you would. And then here's this passage of Scripture we've been looking at for the last several weeks uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, where Solomon is dedicating the temple and he is recounting those, those uh, promises that God made to his father David. Let's go look with verse 6 this morning. 
instead of reading it all, just verse 6. And, and Solomon uh, is quoting the Lord, and he says, The Lord says, Yet I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. And he goes on. He says, Now it was in the heart of my father David, Solomon would say, to build a temple for the name of the Lord, God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build this temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David, and I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. You see this emphasis on the name of God somehow being in this area. Now, of course, those of us that know the scriptures and know something about the history of Israel, of course we know the symbolism of his name being there by, first of all, just his people being there. Second of all, by that being the city that God took them to. Thirdly, by the fact that the temple was built there in the glory and honor of his name, one of the ancient wonders, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Um, uh, uh, fourthly, by the fact that the word of God emanated from the people of Israel and out of the center of Jerusalem and out of the temple and the priests and the scribes and the, you know, and the teachers of the word. Uh, so that carried forth his name. And then fifthly, of course, and most preciously to us, in that when God put on flesh, He put on Jewish flesh, and He came in the person of Jesus Christ, and most of His ministry was centered in and around Jerusalem. Much of it, particularly in the last several weeks, centered right around that temple mound, that temple mount, and right around the temple, there Jesus would proclaim that He was the true light. He was the light that had come from God. He was the light of the world. That He was God in the flesh. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. And then just a few hundred yards from the side of that temple, right outside the gates of the city, is where God in the flesh would pay for the price for our sin and His precious blood would flow. And His name would be lifted up and glorified now for some 2,000 years later. Over here in Milton, Florida this morning, we're glorifying the name of Jesus, which is God in the flesh, coming right out of the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years back. So God causes His name to dwell there, has caused His name to dwell there, will cause His name to dwell there. When Jesus returns, the Bible says He will rule and reign from right there, right in the center of the earth. It is an amazing place. My wife and I have had the great privilege of going there. Some of you have also been to Israel as you have shared with me. It is an amazing spiritual place. For the Christian especially to walk and to be in those areas where Jesus was, perhaps where Jesus stood in the very place, and to feel that presence. And it's just this little teeny piece of land that you would otherwise think is pretty worthless. Yet humankind for thousands of years have been fighting to occupy that land. It is so rich in resources. It's a military uh, strategic location. It's an economically strategic location. It is, uh, it is uh, rich in natural resources. Uh, I've read several reports. I don't know how uh, factual they are, but they claim that that area has almost every natural resource that is found in the world except oil. They have not discovered oil there. Gold is there. Diamonds there. Silver's there. Minerals, the salt, the great, you know, the, uh, the Dead Sea and all the minerals that come from that are there. The vegetables and fruits that grow over there are unbelievable. The soil is rich. Uh, you find everything there from desert climate and beautiful tropical resorts all the way to mountains with snow on them that you can ski in, in this little teeny stretch of land. Beautiful lakes, beautiful rivers, beautiful streams, the Mediterranean Sea, all in this little teeny stretch of land. 
Everything that you could want on the face of the earth is found in this one little spot right in the center of the earth. And right in the center of that stretch of land is Jerusalem. And right in the center of that, I propose to you, God has literally put his name. Now, we know these symbolic ways, the temple, the word, etc. But what I have undertaken to show you in these last couple of weeks are the ways, the three ways, that I believe the Lord has shown to me where God has literally put his name there. I'm not the only one in the world to see these things. Other people are seeing them all over the world now. And I think that it is a sign of further of being in the last days, as God told Daniel, keep this stuff sealed that I've shown you until the last days. And I think a lot of these amazing truths and secrets and riches of God's glory are being unveiled in these last days before the return of Jesus Christ. So I pray that you will enjoy what you see this morning especially in point number three, which none of you have seen, unless you saw this some four, three, four, five years ago when I preached this message. But if you haven't seen it, I pray that God will use this to thrill your heart. When he said, I will put my name there, not only did he mean it in the dimensional plane that we can see clearly through the word, the temple, the word, Jesus, but also in another plane and dimension where he literally meant that he put his name there. Now, let me do a quick review and to show you the first two ways that I have already shown you why I think God has literally put his name in the city of Jerusalem and in that area. Click the page if you would. Click it again, please. Thank you. All right. There's the Hebrew alphabet. The shin is the 21st of 22 letters. For those of you that were counting the letters before and telling me that I was wrong, um, <laughs> what you see, I've underlined several uh, uh, sounds that are represented by different uh, letter shapes. That's similar to our English language. If I spell the word tough, it's T-O-U-F, right? <laughs> no, T-O-U-G-H. Well, a G-H, what sound does it make? It's an F sound, doesn't it? So, you, you know, so the English language has those variations and, and oddities about it, and the Hebrew uh, alphabet is represented this way with different representations for the same sounds. So, but when you, there are actually 22 letters represented, or 22 sounds of the Hebrew alphabet, the 21st one is the letter Shin. Now, what's amazing about that letter Shin, that's the one circled, of course, there, is that the letter Shin was chosen by the ancient Hebrews many thousands of years ago to be the letter to represent the name of God, the holy name of God. Kind of like the way Christians chose the fish symbol, and there's a reason why. It's called the ichthus in Greek. The first couple letters of the word fish also represent the first couple letters of the word Christ, and so the fish was used. A lot of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. Jesus told them, I'll make you fishers of men. So the, the fish symbol just meant so many things, and the ancient Christians would, would put that on their secret places of worship so that they would know who was a Christian and where they were worshiping under the Roman persecution. So it was a symbol that the Christians used to represent it. For some reason, Reason, and nobody that I know of knows exactly why, but the Hebrews chose the letter Shin. Now, there are some speculations, and I preached on those before, and I'm not going to bore you with all that again, those of you that were here. Those of you that weren't here, feel free to get a tape and or a CD of the messages of the last two Sundays, and you can get all the details. But suffice it to say, the letter Shin is used, and you can verify any of this on the internet from Hebrew sites, but the letter Shin is the one letter that's used by the Hebrew people to represent the name of God. That is the unspeakable name of God. The ancient Hebrews believed that God's name was not to be spoken, but rather it was to be represented in symbols. 
Here it is represented as a single letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I'll show you later on where it's represented by a series of four consonants of the Hebrew letter, of the Hebrew alphabet that represents the name of God. We'll get into that in just a moment. But for right now, the 21st letter of the Hebrew alphabet it is used to represent the name of God. It still is today among Orthodox Hebrews today, the letter Shin. Now, so when we look at Jerusalem, what do we find? Click the page, if you will. What we find is that the valleys in and around Jerusalem actually join together to make a perfect Hebrew shin. And the valleys are Kidron Valley, the Tyropian Valley, and the Hinnom Valley. I preached on this. I gave the meanings of all of those in the, in the biblical where you can find them in the scriptures and what they mean. But for those of you that are new to this, I'm not going to go back and re-preach it, but just suffice it to say there are three valleys. There's a map. I did not draw those brown spots on the map. Those maps, that map looks just like what your map looks like in the back of your Bible. I told the folks that were here before that I showed this map to my Hebrew tour guide in Israel. I outlined it with my finger. I showed him those valleys, and he said, oh, my goodness. He said, that's a shin. He said that. That's a shin. That's the name of God. Our city is on the name of God. He said, I've never seen this before. I must tell everybody this. And so he was amazed. He was astounded. His Hebrew eyes saw it immediately when I took my finger and, 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 and carved it out for him. And the city of Jerusalem is literally sitting on top of the, the letter that the Hebrews chose thousands of years before or, or ago to represent the name of God. And so when God says, I'm going to take you to a place where I have put my name, he meant that. And then he said, and then I'm going to take you to a place where I will put my name. <laughs> he meant that. He's, and I'm going to take you to a place where I have caused my name to dwell and to live. And of course, in Jesus Christ, his name lived in that place. And his name dwells there in the valleys. His name has been there, was there, is there, will be there in Jerusalem. Do you see that? Isn't that awesome? The depth of when God speaks. You can give Jesus a hand. When God speaks, not only, not only does he mean what he says at the surface level we understand, but oftentimes when God speaks, he means it at several dimensions, sometimes beyond our ability to even comprehend. David couldn't have seen these valleys. He didn't have airplanes and satellites standing on one of the highest peaks nearby there. You cannot see the perfect shin. I've been on that peak so that we can look down on the city of Jerusalem. You can't see that from there. When I showed him the valleys, all you can see from that highest peak really is the Kidron Valley. You cannot see the Tyropian Valley. You cannot see the Hinnom Valley. David could not have known that. Solomon could not have known that. God could have known that. You reckon he did? When he said, I'm going to take you to a place where I've carved my initials. I've put my name there. And that's where my name will come from. That's where I will put on flesh and dwell. That's where you'll crucify my son. That's where you'll build my temple. I'm going to take you to that place, David. And there it is. The only place on the face of the earth where a perfect shin is carved into the valleys. And the only place where God put his people and told him before he did, I'm going to take you to a place where I've put my name. It's only been in our generation, if you will, when we could get up above it, look straight down on it, and see it laying there. It's been there for thousands of years, the name of God. All right, number two, I showed the folks, and you, most of you folks, click it if you will. Uh, so on that city, where that city is built, now if you can see, I see, you see the little black lines, those are streets and ways, but then you see the thick black line, that represents the city walls of of uh, ancient Jerusalem, and you can see how it eventually spread out into, all, into the two valleys of the Kidron Valley, 
and the Tyropian Valley. The Hinnom Valley is on the outside left over there. That was the garbage dump. That was the trash dump, of course. Jesus used that as an illustration of hell several times in the scripture. The Gehenna, he would call it, and it's burning and it's filth and it's just stench and the heat and the and he used that as an example. But you can see, where, but the original city where David settled is down here in the red called the city of David or Zion. And then it spread out up the mountain range over to the head Ophel and above to the head Moriah where the temple mound was built in the temple and then the rest of the city built around there. But it was originally built on Zion spreading up towards Moriah. This is interesting because the bulk of the city where it originated and then where it would culminate in the temple is built on this one rock, this one mountain that has three heads. One rock three heads, one God, three persons. And the thing is, when you study the names of these mountains that God's people gave to these mountains years, thousands of years before Christ came and revealed to us the understanding of one God, three persons, before we began to understand God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they gave them these names, Ophel, Zion, and Moriah. These names are very meaningful. Click the page if you would. I went into great detail on these last Sunday. I will not re-preach it, but basically Moriah means to see God. And in Jesus Christ, we saw God. Ophel means my fortress, my strength, my tower, my stronghold, my rock, which, is the, which, is all, which are all names used for God the Father throughout the Old Testament. God the Father, God my rock, God my fortress, God my stronghold, God my high tower, Ophel. And that was what they used to call it. And then down below, the, the mountain peak Zion. And we're very familiar with that. We sing songs about marching onward to Zion, the holy city of God, Zion. We talk about going over to Zion, crossing the Jordan River. We're going to go to Zion one day. It's representative of heaven. It was the original city of David. It means the mark or the seal or the way mark. And of course, that to me represents the Holy Spirit very beautifully because in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 6 or verse 13 and following, it says, and you also having heard the gospel, believed and were included in Jesus Christ with us, having been marked with a seal, the Holy Spirit of God. So there you have, in the middle, Ophel, God the Father, if you will. Seated to the left hand, Zion, the mark, God the Holy Spirit, if you will. Seated to the right hand, if you will, Moriah, to see God or seen by God. Jesus, in Jesus Christ, we saw God, God the Son. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Somebody may say, well, that's stretching it a bit. Maybe, but it's awfully coincidental that those three names would have such rich symbolism to the Trinity and the Old Testament people that settled in that area and gave them those names could not have had and did not have any idea of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three in one. That would have come in the fulfillment and, and the understanding through Jesus Christ. And here they sat for all of these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, on top of a mountain with three heads that they would give those names, on top of a shin that they had no idea was there, and there they would build the temple, and there they would settle right in the center of the earth, and they could not have known that either. And God said, from here, I have put my name there, I am putting my name there, I will put my name there, and forevermore my name will be there. Pretty amazing stuff, huh? Now let me show you my favorite one. My favorite one comes from our understanding of John chapter 19, but turn the page if you would. Number three. 
To me, there's no greater way that God put His name in Jerusalem than by God the Son dwelling there and teaching there and ministering there and healing there and declaring there that He is the light of the world and the Messiah coming into that city, coming in the eastern gate of the Temple Mound and having the people throw their cloaks and things and going up to the temple and there within a few hundred yards being on a cross with his arms outstretched, his hands and feet nailed and fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 22 and Zechariah chapter 2 and Zechariah chapter 10 and others. There the name of God dwelled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, not only do we know God, but we know His name. His name is Jesus, the name of God. But there's something strange that happened there, at least in my understanding. Something that happened there that day, that something that was said, something that was done, and something that was said that has, uh, for many years, has caused me to ponder a little bit until I discovered what I'm getting ready to show with you, to show you. Turn the page, if you would. So here we are in John chapter 19, verse 17 and 21. Verses 17 and 21. Just follow along there with me in your Bible. Jesus has been taken out to be crucified. He's got a thief hanging on either side of him. And Pilate has caused a sign to be put over Jesus' head. Now that's interesting. Not only that he would put that sign there, but he put it in three languages. And what's interesting is the reaction of the Jews there, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and Sadducees, that saw that sign that day. And here's what the scripture says. And so Jesus, he bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now that's what it is in English. Now it was written in Greek and Italian and Hebrew. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And I think I said Italian, I meant to say Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews, or I'm going to just add some words, or anything else, or something else, but take down that phrase that says, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. Now, I, I, I'd wondered about that for many years. Why would the Jews be so concerned and so upset that Pilate would have posted, now y'all listen to me, that Pilate would have posted exactly what they accused him of to get him on the cross? So they get him on the cross through all of their lies and their intrigue and their politics. They finally get him there. And how did they get him there? They had to convince Pilate that Jesus was passing himself off as the king of the Jews and that the people were worshiping him as the king of the Jews. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees would say, basically, we have no king but Caesar, you know, kissing their feet and everything. And, you know, and this guy, he's, you know, he's causing a mess. And people think he's the king. And, 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 and he's passing himself off as the king. And he's got followers that claim he's the king. And, you know, there is no king but Caesar. And that's a sentence punishable by death. And you remember, Pilate really didn't want to do this thing. He saw right through the whole thing. You remember when Pilate called Jesus in? He asked him, said, are you a king? You remember Jesus' answer? He says, are you asking me that of your own accord? Or did somebody tell you to ask me that? Remember? 
And he says, are you a king? And Jesus said, yes, I am, but not of this world. If I were king of this world, then my followers would be here right now to deliver me from your hands. But I, I am a king, but not of this world. You, you remember all that from the scriptures? Well, Pilate saw nothing worthy of this man being killed for. He was a Jewish teacher, a Jewish preacher, a Jewish evangelist. It's, that's all he was concerned. He'd heard rumors of miracles, you, you know, but it was just the Jews were crazy about this guy. And he didn't want to kill him, so he took him out and he put Barabbas up there and he put Jesus up there. You remember that? And he says, hey, on this day, he came up with a plan. He said, on this day, I release a prisoner to you. You get to choose one. Thinking surely they would choose to release Jesus because after all, he just healed them and opened their eyes and fed them loaves of bread and fishes and fed 10,000 and, and healed the lame and raised the dead. It was rumored over in, out there in old Lazarus just outside of town there in Bethany. And, and, and so he thought for sure these people would want him instead of Barabbas who had caused an insurrection in the city, had caused the Roman troops to come into the city, who had murdered somebody, who had caused the Romans to come down on top of the Jewish heads. And he thought for sure they would say, release Jesus. Okay, really, given that choice, release Jesus. But that's not what happened. So no, give us Barabbas. You remember Pilate would just washed his hands of the whole thing. He said, okay, okay. And so, Pilate trying to keep peace with the whole thing, knowing that if he had another insurrection, the Roman government would pull him out of Judea and he would lose his governorship. He went ahead and appeased the crowd and washed his hands of the whole thing, showing that he just thought they were wrong, but he was going to do what they said. And then he had an inscription put over his head. It was written in Latin because that was the official language of the Roman government. That was the legal language for those that would want to read it that way. It was written in Greek because that was the official literary language of that area of the world. That's why the New Testament was written entirely in Greek because of Alexander the Great and his influence for hundreds of years before on that whole area. Thoroughly Greek. And then, of course, it was written in Hebrew because the area was filled with Jews who still spoke and understood and wrote Hebrew or the variation in that day of Aramaic. Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And what did he put up there? Well, he put up there what the Jews had told him. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And so the Pharisees come, and I would think they would look at that and scoff and say, we did it, we convinced them, he's got the king of the Jews. And you know, we're going to... And what Pilate was saying is, okay, Jews... Hello. <laughs> okay, is, is that you, Jim? That's your wife. Oh, okay. Sandy. Okay, it's you. All right. <laughs> Fine. Hey, hey, give me the phone. Let me answer it. No, you're not going to do that? Okay. <laughs> I say, hello. <laughs> Sandy, see, you didn't believe I'd call your name like that, did you? <laughs> No, I just looked over there, saw Jim's face red, and I saw your head under the pew. So that's all right. Happens to the best of us. You're going to happen to me before, right here in the service before, so don't you worry. All right. Now, so here's what Pilate was saying by putting that sign up there. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Here, here's what I think he was saying. Not only is this what the Pharisees said to get him up there. Okay, but you Jews, let me show you your king, and let me show you what the Roman government can do to your Jewish king. Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews, being crucified like a dog by the Roman government. That was his statement. Now, why would the Pharisees be mad with that? That's what they wanted. Why did they look at that sign and say, change it, change the wording of it, 
change it to he said I was the king of the Jews, put some other words in there, do something with it. Why would he do that? All right, I'm going to show you something amazing. Some of you have seen this from years past, but a lot of you have never seen this before. I'm going to show you something. All right, click the page. Now, to the Hebrews, in this, to this very day, they are fascinated with study of language, study of their words, study of the word meanings and acronyms and numerical value to the language. Click it if you would. Uh, the Hebrew gematra is very important to the people. You can go on Google, get on the internet, and put in gematra. You'll have all kinds of websites and Hebrew language study websites. The gematra is an assigning of the Hebrews for ah, thousands of years, have assigned numerical values to different letters of the Hebrew alphabet. That's why when we get to the book of Revelation, chapter 13, when it's talking about the Antichrist, it gives us a number... His number is 666, and then it goes on to say, it is the number of his name, let the reader understand. The number of his name. Seeing as how all of the first Christians were Jews, and many of the Christians in the church uh, throughout uh, the Roman Empire were Jews. Now, Gentiles came in later on, but seeing as how the book of Revelation was written to that first century church, and there was a lot of Jewish mindset in the church, and a lot of Jews in the church, I think that when it said that in Revelation 13, the number of his name is 666, I think it was a reference to the Hebrew gematra. It was very important. So the Antichrist in the last days, when his name is written in Hebrew, it will number 666 by the Hebrew gematra. I believe that. I could be wrong, but I think that's what it means. That's very important to the Hebrews, the, the gematra, the numbering of names. Every name has a number to it, and sometimes numbers are very significant. That's a very fascinating study. Also, as you know, Psalm 119, I pointed this out to you before, is basically an acrostic, the whole psalm. I think it's the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, and it's written as an acrostic using all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. In fact, in your Bible translations, if you'll turn there sometime, and you can do it now or later, but if you'll turn there sometime, you'll notice that the, it, the, the, the beginning of each section has the Hebrew letter. It actually has the Hebrew letter and then the pronunciation of it as we would pronounce it in English. And the next to the last letter is the shin, and it'll have the little thing that kind of looks like a W, and it'll say shin or, and, and or sin, S-I-N, which is another Hebrew way of pronouncing that letter. And so each section begins with a letter. It would be like taking our English alphabet and doing a poem with it and starting the first paragraph with the letter A and the second paragraph with the letter B and the third paragraph with the letter C and going all the way through to Z. That's what Psalm 119 is. You cannot see that in the English because it doesn't work out that way in the English. That's why in your Bibles it'll have the Hebrew letters over each section to show you that it's not just a way for them to put the alphabet in there. It's a way of showing you that that's what it is. If it were written in Hebrew, it is a Hebrew acrostic, Psalm 119. And so their manipulation of words and numbers with words and acrostics and acronyms for words is very fascinating. It has gone on for thousands of years with the Hebrews. It's still going on today in the Hebrew language studies. And again, you can verify this with many, many Hebrew websites now, or Hebrew language study websites. Now, they are especially fascinated and have been for thousands of years with this word, Click it, if you will. This word, in English, it would be Y-H-V-H, but that's just the English representation of the Hebrew words. It would be pronounced in, 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 in Hebrew down here, yud he wah he yud he wah he 
That's how the letters would be pronounced. Those letters are consonants. They have no vowel sound, so you really, in Hebrew, you could not pronounce that. yud he wah So scholars, biblical scholars now in the more modern times, put together vowel sounds, vowel points they call them, and vowel sounds, and so that, have you ever heard the name Yahweh? Okay, that's where it comes from. yud he wah You can kind of hear that, can't you? yud he wah Yahweh. Okay? Now, have you ever heard the name Jehovah? Okay, it's the same thing. It comes from the yud he wah but that name was given by the early Germanic biblical scholars, and they used the German pronouncing yud he vav he But Hebrew has no vav sound. The German has that sound. And so that's how, how in, this, so in some of the older biblical translations, like King James, I don't know if New King James have, has it, but it'll talk about the Lord God Jehovah. Okay? Um, the newer translations will sometimes do the, uh, Yahweh or just the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Is everybody with me so far? Please don't go asleep because you're going to see something mind-blowing in a moment, but i got to show you this first so that it'll be good for you. All right, is everybody with me? All right, so yud heh That's the name that the ancient Hebrew scholars gave. That's the word they gave to the name of the Lord God Almighty, the omnipotent, omnipresent God Almighty. You can't speak it. It makes no sense in Hebrew. There's no way to pronounce it. It's unpronounceable. It's the unspeakable name of the Most High God. You don't speak His name. He's too holy to speak His name. You remember when Moses asked the burning bush and the voice out of the burning bush says, Who, do, who am I going to tell the people uh, sent me? I'm, I can't go tell them I spoke to a bush that was on fire. Yeah, I mean, really. I mean, that's, that's an honest question Moses asked. They put him in a straight jacket, put him in the same as He said, I can't, I can't tell them I'm speaking to a burning bush. Who do I tell them sent me? Remember what God said? He said, you tell them the great I am has sent you. Just I am who I am. What's your name? I, you can't speak it. I'm not going to give it to you. Just tell them I am has sent you. So the Hebrews had this understanding that, you know, that to them, you, you don't even speak the name of God. He just who, is who he is. And so they have these four consonants represents the name of God. Now, something interesting. P- please bear with me a little on the side. In a lot of your more modern scholarly translations like the NA, NIV, and I think maybe the NAS, maybe the New King James Version, I'm not sure. I'm positive about the NIV. In translating and translating into English, you had to deal with the difficulty. That is, when they were reading the Hebrew and they came across yud he wah how are you going to represent that because it's unspeakable but it is the name of the Lord God Almighty so in your NIV translation you will see they will put capital L capital O capital R capital D whenever you see that the Lord said all right now in Hebrew it would say the yud he wah said or as we would try to pronounce it in Hebrew the Yahweh said but in the English, it will say the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Is everybody with me? Now, you, but, they, but there are other words that mean Lord in Hebrew too. Adonai. That translates to Lord. So how do you represent that in the English without confusing it with Yahweh? Because Adonai means a great king or a revered leader. Well, sometimes that name Adonai is used for God because he is the king of kings, right? He is revered and honored. So how do you represent that? Well, in your translations, it'll have capital L, little o, little r, little d. Have you ever seen that in your Bibles and wondered why the difference? That's why. 
then sometimes there is another word that we translate Lord. It's Adon, not Adonai, but Adon. And it simply means sir. So how do we translate that? Well, it's translated little l, little o, little r, little d. Lord, what are we going to do today? And it's little l, little sir, what are we going to do? Is everybody with me? All right, I, I just want you to see this name. It's very interesting how these, these things are translated and the difficulties in translating them. And so the yud heh is the unspeakable name of the Lord God, these four consonants. All right, turn the page. Don't tell me you have an error. Click that off and reopen it back up if you need to. And then just click up to where we were. I can do it without it, but I want you to see it. It's much more powerful if you can see it. Okay, while we're waiting on that, there was an old lady with a little old dog that was going on an African safari. <laughs> Y'all look at me. She was going on an African safari, and she had her little old frail poodle with her, and they were out in the African safari with the tour guides. The dog got separated and ran off. And the dog was sitting there, scared and everything. All right, just leave it right there. And the dog was sitting there scared, because i got to tell the joke now, right? And he was sitting there scared. <laughs> And he saw this leopard coming up behind him through the woods. And the dog said, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And he looked and he saw this pile of bones. So he stuck his face down, started licking the bones. He said, mm, that leopard was good. Well, the leopard heard that and went, Arr! And he slunk off into the woods. He said, man, I just escaped that bad dog just by the skin of my teeth. Well, there was a monkey sitting in the tree watching the whole thing. And the monkey thought, hmm, I can use this information for my own protection because that leopard's always messing with me. So the monkey goes down and tells the leopard everything that happened. That leopard was mad at that little old frail poodle. said, he has tricked me, made a fool out of me right here in the jungle. So the, he tells the monkey, he says, jump on my back. We're gonna, he said, I'm going to show you what I do to an old dog that makes a fool out of me like that. So they go bounding through the woods. It's about an hour later. Well, the little poodle's still frantically looking around trying to find, you know, his master. And he looks and he sees over his shoulder, he sees a leopard bounding through the woods with a monkey riding his back. And the leopard's just snarling and slobbering and slinging his head back and forth and showing his teeth. And the poodle just starts shaking. Says, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And he's having to think, 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 think. So he turns around, turns his back to the leopard. And he cries out, where is that monkey that I went and sent an hour ago to bring me another leopard? At which point the leopard went and took off. Now, the moral of that story for you young people is this. Don't you mess with us old dogs, man. We're smart. <laughs> Don't mess with us. Okay. Did you, you got that. You liked that, didn't you? All right. Are we recovered now, brother? Okay, thanks. Okay. Yudhe Wahe. Has everybody got that? Okay, now Pilate wrote a title, put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That's what the Bible says. And it says it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. All right? So click it one time. 
There it is in Latin. If you were to write it in Latin, there it is. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. I do want to butcher the Latin language. I butcher the English and the Spanish language enough. So I will not speak it, but you can see it. Do you see in the parentheses I-N-R-I? That is an acronym for the first word, the second word, the third word, the fourth word, the first letter. Do you see that? I-N-R-I. How many of you in here are ex-Catholics? We had a bunch in the first service. Okay, a bunch in here. You know that that is the acronym for what was written above Jesus' head. The Catholics call it the INRI, I think. Okay? Some Catholics don't even know that it's an acronym for the Latin written above. But it's just, you, you know, if you've ever seen a Catholic crucifix or if you've been in a Catholic church and you see the, you know, with Jesus represented on the cross, usually, you know, and his head's down, and above him is this scroll, and it doesn't have all three, and it can't e doesn't even write out the whole Latin text. It just has I-N-R-I. Why is that? Well, the Catholics used an acronym. The Latin Romans used an acronym for what was written above Jesus' head. What does it stand for? It stands for Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Is everybody with me? Okay. So the Latin Roman Catholic world was into acronyms and used it as well, just like the ancient Hebrews used acronyms. All right, now it was also written in Greek. Put it up there. There is the Greek. I will not try to pronounce it because it is all Greek to me. There's very few times I can use that phrase, and so there was one of the times. It's just all Greek to me, but there it is. That's it. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Okay. But the Bible says it was also written in Hebrews, which the Jews would have really paid attention to. They would have seen it. They would have read it. They would have understood it. Put it up there in Hebrew. Click it once. Click it again. I think that's why. I think that's why those Hebrews walked out there that day when they told him, he, he's the king of the Jews, you know, kill him. Pilate said, okay, here's your king. I'm going to show you what I do to the king. Here's the king of the Jews, kill him. The, the Pharisees go out there and they look. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, in Hebrew, yud heh wah -heh, the unspeakable name of the Almighty God posted above his head. And they cried out, Change it, put anything you want there. Put, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Put, he said he was the king of the Jews. Take it down or do something, but change those words. Don't have the sentence up there, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, because, because we see Yahweh. He is not Yahweh. But what do we say? Oh, yes, he is. Yahweh. Not only did God carve his name in the initial, with his initials in the valleys, not only did he form that city on top of that rock with three heads and put it in the hearts of the people to put those names there, not only did he put the temple there, not only when he put on flesh did he do his ministry there, did he teach there, not only did God the Son allow himself to be crucified there for our sins, but God the Father put it in the heart of a pagan governor to post over the head of his son, Yahweh is here. Give the Lord a hand. Not only that, but where was Jesus crucified? Moriah. What does Moriah mean? To see God. To see Him. God says, come. I'll take you, David, to a place where I have put my name and a place where I will put my name and a place where I have caused my name to live. It's a holy place. I will take you there. 
Now, before I close, I want to show you one more neat thing about that name that the ancient Hebrews could not have known, and it only means something to us New Testament Christians. Because that name, not only yud heh wah means the unspeakable name of God, not only was it the acronym for the Hebrew, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, but I want to show you something else. Turn the page. Click it once. Okay, you've already seen that. Click it again. Now, if you'll take yud heh wah and put those letters backwards, they make an acronym for another Hebrew expression. There's the Hebrew expression. I don't know how you pronounce that, but you can write it down there. Brother Jack, do you know how to pronounce that? I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Okay, that's okay. Um, but there it is. That's the expression. The he, the wa, the he, the yud. All right. <laughs> that's, if you read it forwards, yud he, wa he, it's the name of God. If you read it backwards, it's an it's an acronym for that expression. Do you know what that expression is? Click it. He who is, who was, and who is to come. Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty. O Moriah, you see him in my son. He who was, he who is. And he who is coming again. God said, I have put my name there. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, folks, I'm telling you what, don't go to the last slide. I need to close it down. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, I, here, here's, what, here's what we need to ask. Who is this God? <laughs> who speaks a word, says, I will put my name there. And then we go and we see the temple built. We see the word. We even see Jesus come and we say, oh yeah, his name is there, his name is there. But then thousands of years later with the technology and the understanding, we look and we look down from space and we say, my gosh, his name is there. And then we look at the mountains upon which the city was built and we see the words that the Hebrews gave it thousands of years before the understanding of the Trinity. And there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one rock, three heads, one, three and one, one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Who is this God? Who is this God that puts on flesh and dwells among us for three years and then tells us He's going to a cross to pay for our sin? But don't worry because three days later He'll rise again to show us He's the Lord of life. And then He pulls it all off. He goes goes to the cross, he rises from the grave, but he sheds his blood and causes and puts it in the heart of a pagan governor to put above him Yahweh. Read it the other way in New Testament times, he who was, he who is, and he who is to come. Who is this God that can pull all of that off? It's the same God who stretches out His hand to you today through the Holy Spirit and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's the same, blood, the same God who says, come, come today. It's the same God that says to born-again believers, to born-again believers, He says, now I have done something more amazing than putting my initials in the valleys and putting my name on the rocks and even more amazing than putting a sign above my son's head. If you're sitting here as a born-again believer, you know what the Bible says? He says, I have put my name on your heart. And the Bible says, and there's a new name 
given to us in heaven, which only the Father knows. If you're a born-again believer today, please understand, being a Christian means more than being a member of Hicker Hammock or being a Baptist or being somebody who believes in Jesus. Being a born-again Christian means that God has put His seal on you. He's put His mark on you. He's put His name on you. And you belong to Him and you belong to Him forever. Give Jesus praise and glory.